We continue this morning in our time in 1 Thessalonians and moving into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in every chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, it includes the same message. He keeps telling them, you can be as comfortable and wealthy and as famous as I am. He's saying, don't worry. If you just become one of my gold elite supporters, if you work my eight surefire steps of, to open the gates, the floodgates of heaven, if you keep convincing yourself that you're just as important as Jesus, then you too can be as comfortable and wealthy and famous as I am. No, that's ridiculous. I'm beginning this as a joke. Every chapter of this letter to the Thessalonians in God's holy word is saying, take heart, Jesus is coming. All your effort to live for his glory will be made worth it all. When he returns, everything will be made right. We were told in chapter 1 that the Thessalonian church went through everything to wait for his son, for God's son from heaven. In chapter 2, we'll see in verse 19 that Paul refers to those he has led to Christ as his crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Paul's prayer is that Christ might establish their hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In chapter 4, we'll see in verses 13 through 18 that Paul encourages them concerning members of their church family who had already died. They, too, will rise again because the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And as verse 18 tells us and tells me, and this is why I'm sharing it with you, to encourage one another with these words. And lastly, in chapter 5, closing out his letter, and it's just as much a letter to us as it is to the Thessalonians. Paul's hope, as he closes, is that they would be kept by God in his grace and kept to that point at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the meantime, we can expect that we will long for Jesus' return. We can expect that our longing isn't going to be a matter of us thinking, if following Christ has brought me this much riches and pleasure in this life, I can't wait to see my riches in heaven. There are glorious riches in heaven for following Christ. And those riches are Christ himself. And there's going to be some longing involved between now and then. There's going to be some longing for that day. Because this day now is not then yet. We look at the extraordinary Christian life. And we'll be looking at this idea over these weeks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and chapter 3. The experience of the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of the extraordinary Christian life. This means that it's a picture of the ordinary Christian life, just extra so, with him being an apostle of Jesus and all. Our passage reflects the golden days of the birth of the church in Thessalonica, and it was not a cakewalk. We pick up in chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning, where he writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul describes his work as being labor and toil, but that doesn't mean he regrets it. He describes it as being night and day, but that doesn't mean that he, he would have had it any differently. I want you to see here this morning, first of all, following Christ is a call to spiritual fruit, not fleshly perks. It's a call to spiritual fruit, not fleshly perks. Paul wrote to them saying, you yourselves know, brothers, our coming to you was not in vain. He bore fruit among them. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And he goes on to talk about how his appeal, it didn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive them. This was common among the, the uh, teachers that would travel in that day, saying whatever they needed to in order to get people to listen, in order to people, get people to give them what they wanted from them. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Notice the contrasting motives that are pointed out here. There can be a lot of fleshly perks even tied to, to ministry within the church and among God's people. We, there can be seeking to please man. This would include how rewarding it can be to make people happy with us. We can be motivated to use words of flattery, maybe to talk, talk that butters people up in order to get from them what we want. It can be motivated by greed. It could be a temptation to lay the groundwork for to be able to score a payday one day in some, in some way. It can be a matter of seeking glory from people. This could include being elevated to a position of respect and admiration, doing what we do in order to be liked, to be respected. The true gospel doesn't lend itself to fleshly perks because, as one writer says, people do not want a message that tells them that they are helpless sinners and that they must depend humbly on God's mercy for their salvation. Instead, there's the spiritual benefits 
of ministry. To be entrusted with the gospel, to carry the most precious truth for the purpose of being an ambassador for God himself. Well, look at verse 2. Paul describes this as the gospel of God. It's an honor to, to live to please God. Having been clothed with Christ's righteousness, receiving Christ as our Savior, and to be free to seek to bring glory, to bring him joy by serving him. In verses 1 through 2, we see that the spiritual fruit was born in the lives of those who would believe. And we see in here, the gospel is the furthest thing from being worthless. Paul writes, our coming was not in vain, meaning it wasn't worthless. To be worthless would mean to have the, the lasting impact of a breath that just dissipates in the wind. The, their work among the Thessalonians wasn't comfortable, but it was valuable. And they declared the gospel of God. I mean, think about it. The gospel means good news. If a friend walked up to you and said, I've got good news, you would assume it's something that has changed for the better, and it's something that is important to you. We're talking about God's good news, something that is of ultimate importance that has changed for the, for the better, for the eternal better of those who put their trust in it. One commentary says, the gospel is not of human origin. It is nothing less than God's plan for man's salvation. The Christian faith is not the accumulated wisdom of pious souls, nor the insight of men of religious genius, but the divine plan for dealing with our sin. And God's divine plan cost him dearly. Because it meant his son taking the form of a man and living a perfect life and not deserving to die, but taking our sins on himself, on the cross, and rising from the dead so that, that we could trust in the fact that he took our sins and we could receive the new life that he brings to us both now and for all of eternity. That is the gospel. It is a gospel so important that Paul wrote in Galatians 1 that if someone else is preaching a different gospel, it would be better for them to go to hell than to be able to continue doing so. That's how important the gospel of God is. You know, lately, I found myself waking up, and maybe you've been thinking kind of the same thing. I found myself waking up and thinking, I just want to hear some good news. And I pick my phone up and I'm scrolling through reports and things and I'm thinking, is my guy winning this election? Has some fraud finally been brought to justice? Is the world starting to be set right again with all this, this crazy talk about everybody can just do what is right in their own eyes? And I found myself asking, is there any good news today? Until I realized I have got the greatest news that I or anyone could ever ask for. The God of the universe has made me his friend through Christ. And I can open his word and read about it on every page. I don't need to scroll through my phone for the latest news. And any of my friends or neighbors that trust in Christ as Savior, 
They can live in this good news. Our calling and our joy are to be the same as the Apostle Paul's, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We've got to see this good news as the good news of God that we could never live without. We've got to see God's truth as the good news of God that others desperately need. Be invested in God's eternal work of His gospel rather than comfort and security and what might make others respect you more. We also see that living for the gospel often brings suffering. Paul and his team were shamefully treated at Philippi. And I'm going to read over some of Acts 16 and 17. And bear with me here, but, but I, I think it's important. We can read in Acts 16, Luke's account of how Paul and his team were used by God to bring the gospel to Europe into the, the area of Macedonia and the region of specifically of Philippi. And there wasn't a synagogue in that area, so they went to look for God-fearing Jews that would meet in what would be considered the next best place. So we read in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so a church was born from the household of Lydia, and they stayed some days, as Luke puts it. Paul and his team were discipling the young church of Philippi until trouble started. You see, Paul had ended up harming the business of some evil men when he cast a demon out of the slave girl that they had been using to tell people's fortunes and such. And we read in verse 19, these men, it says, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And this brought some of the suffering that Paul refers to in our passage in verse 2. It, we read in verse 22, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the innermost prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. These stocks, what I read recently, would have been devices for stretching the body in an uncomfortable way. This would certainly be considered shameful treatment. But this suffering would actually lead to more spiritual fruit. As we read on in verse 25 of Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. We see more spiritual fruit taking place and more additions to the church in Philippi. But this fruit also came without fleshly perks. It just came with more shameful treatment. We read in verse 35, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. When Paul and Silas departed Philippi, they traveled to Thessalonica. They weren't dejected because they knew that following Christ wasn't signing up for a pleasure cruise. Paul and his team's travels were not in vain. Even though there was much conflict, their coming wasn't in vain because they sought to please God, not people. They had been entrusted with the gospel of God, not some message that guaranteed to make everyone happy with them. And men and women were saved, both in Philippi and then in Thessalonica, because of it. And in Thessalonica, spiritual fruit was born also amid great conflict. He says in verse 2, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Sharing the gospel often brings conflict. And when speaking about his boldness, one writer says Paul is not speaking of mere natural courage, but of the supernatural endowment with which God equips those who put their trust in him. We can see in Acts 17, how Luke describes how Paul shared the gospel beginning in the synagogue in Thessalonica, this being what Paul is referring to in verse 2, the conflict that the gospel was shared amidst. We read in Acts 17, verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And guess what? The spiritual fruit didn't come with fleshly perks. It came with conflict. 
As we read in verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And then we read in verse 10, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You know, it's not fun to be beaten and to put in stocks all night long. It's not fun to be mocked and misrepresented. It's not fun to have a mob whipped up against you out of jealous rage. But these men and the men and women who had newly found Christ hadn't signed up for some special, trouble-free Christianity. They had embarked on the ordinary Christian life. As Jesus tells us in John 15 verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 through 13, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Following Christ is a call to spiritual fruit, not fleshly perks. While serving God and seeking to be used by Him for the spread of the gospel, don't think that God is going to reward you with an easy life. You're probably going to face more resistance, more backlash, and more spiritual warfare. But I guarantee you, when you obey Christ, you'll enjoy His presence more deeply. Secondly, and more shortly here this morning, I want to show you that following Christ is a call to sacrificial investment, not shallow involvement. We read in verses 7 through 8, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul and his team attended to the needs of the new believers as a mother does her newborn. And it flowed from him giving deeply of his heart and of his energy and of his time. He writes in Philippians 2.17 of something similar where he says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Why? What we see in verse 8 is because they had become very dear to him and to his team. This literally means you became beloved to us. Beloved meaning they became the object of his self-giving quality, of an agape love. You can tell parents of a newborn. Not because they just are carrying a baby car seat and lugging it around everywhere they go, not just because of the fact that there's grandparents no more than 20 feet behind them lunging at the chance to hold the new grandkid. You can tell the parents of a newborn by the fact that they are dead tired. They're walking around like zombies, living off of two hours of sleep at a time. You know, when my brother had triplets, for a time in his and his wife's life, any hope of life outside of feeding, burping, and changing was just over. That's all their life consisted of. But no reasonable mom is going to say, this kid isn't worth it. Where's the receipt? By the time that baby is born, 
It's normal for a mother to be so determined to do whatever it takes to provide for that baby. In the same way, we need to understand that ministering with the gospel involves sacrificial investment, not shallow involvement. We should look at the Apostle Paul's commitment and motivation and measure ours by it. I don't know about you, but even as a pastor, I fall far short. This passage has been very convicting for me. But the fact is, I'm not even called to be like Paul. I'm called to be like Christ, who gave up his glory, gave up his throne, gave up the respect he deserves. He gave up his comfort. He gave up his life so that I might live and that I might live with him following in his steps. And he calls you and me to sacrificial investment, not shallow involvement. Why should you follow Christ in his sacrificial investment for the gospel? Because that's where you get to work alongside of Jesus himself. So in whatever era you've been saying to the Lord, no, maybe because it would require too much of you, I think he's keeping it on your heart for a reason. Maybe he's telling you, I love you too much to let you go on in your shallow investment. Maybe he's saying you're going to find me in a deeper way when you jump in and serve me no matter the cost. I want to challenge you to say yes to Jesus, to give up that temptation, to seek out those who can help you to follow Christ away from that temptation. I want to challenge you to say yes to him, to take up that cross, that ministry, to find him to be faithful and worth it. To commit to disciple another believer through their messiness and to get a little messy in the process. So next time we're in 1 Thessalonians, that's what we'll look at. What it can look like to disciple someone through their mess. But this brings us to a close in it today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I trust that each one of my church family that has a relationship with you through Christ, that you are leading them, that you are calling them. And you're not calling them to, to shallow involvement. You're calling them to sacrificial investment. You haven't called them to fleshly perks. You have called them to spiritual fruit. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to set aside our thoughts that we should be seeking comfort, that we should be seeking security, that we should be seeking praise from people, and to live for your gospel work, to see the needs that are around us in our family, in our neighborhood, and to say, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. I pray that that I and, and my church family would find you in a more significant way through just that. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.